The Bible is filled with many surprises, things that you would not expect to happen. For example, when it comes to faith, you would expect that it would be a big tent and all would be welcome. But we really know that's not true. Um, Jesus spoke in parables, for example, so that some were able to understand what he was saying and others were not. They were confused. It was a riddle. They couldn't figure it out. One of the things that Jesus mentions in one of his parables in John chapter 10 is he talks about the sheep and how Jesus describes the sheep is he says the sheep follow him because they know his voice. So believers have an attuned ear to the Holy Spirit, to reading God's word by prayer. There's a relationship. But for non-believers, they scoff at those things. Um, they think it's a fairy tale and make-believe. So it, it's, like a, uh, it's like a dog or a pet in your, in your house that the dog knows your, your voice. So when you give a command or you're speaking to the dog, the dog understands it. But when somebody from UPS or the Postal Service comes at your front door, your dog is barking because the dog does not know that person, does not know that voice. And so it is with, with us as believers in Christ. There are examples, for example, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 19, it says, Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their dead. So here you have situations where people are coming up to Jesus saying, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus explains to them, hey, there's hardships. You know, I'm the son of, uh, I'm the son of God and I don't even have a place to lay my head. I'm not living in a palace. Is that what you want to do? And then they're like, hey, see you later. Uh, they're not willing to pay that cost. Others say, hey, I'll do it later after uh, after my father dies and I and I get his inheritance. And then after I spend all the inheritance, you know, then I'll, I'll, I'll you know, follow you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you off for now. So Jesus understanding that they do not understand his voice. Another example is in Mark chapter five. This is where there's a demon possessed person Jesus is speaking with, the demon identifies himself as legion. Jesus heals the person. The, the legion of demons go into a herd of pigs and drown themselves. The townspeople come and they see that their investment, that their livestock is drowned and dead. And who's standing there is Jesus. So they blame Jesus and, and ask him to leave. They reject God and they say, you know, leave our area. They would rather live in a, in a town with a demon-possessed person than have someone that came and rectified the situation. So as, as the um, now-cured, healed, demon-possessed person turns to Jesus, this is what he says. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go to your home and family, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So here you have someone that is begging to go with Jesus and Jesus puts him off and says, no, you know, go, go to another town. Ultimately, Jesus was using that for his benefit because Jesus would eventually go to that town and these people like John the Baptist, they were prepared. Uh, their hearts were prepared. They were ready for his arrival. Even those that did know Jesus' voice, such as John the Baptist in chapter 
11 of Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptist, certainly being in the inner circle, baptized Jesus. People were following John the Baptist, and he said, you're following the wrong person. I'm not the Messiah. He pointed to Jesus and said, follow him. So John the Baptist certainly is in the know, but John the Baptist had a moment of doubt. He's in prison, about to have his head cut off, and he's wondering, what is going on here? Um, the Messiah came, and it seems like I should be on the winning team, but I'm in prison. So he had a moment of doubt. So what did he do? He went to the source, just like you and I should. We should go to the Bible. We should pray. Um, and we should turn to God, because God will provide the answers. So John the Baptist did the proper thing. He turned to Jesus. He sent two of his disciples that were still following John the Baptist and said, go ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect someone else? Did I miscalculate? Did I not understand things? John the Baptist expect fire and brimstone. He didn't expect um, healing and, 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 and celebration. Um, John the Baptist didn't understand the Old Testament. He thought that when the Messiah came, that it would be judgment. He didn't understand that the Messiah would come twice, first as a lamb and then as a lion, the first as a wedding, the second as a funeral. John the Baptist merged those two together because he did not fully understand. So when Jesus was doing the healings, he's like, well, where's the judgment? Uh, the judgment is happening on me, but not on, you know, not on the adversaries to, to Jesus. So when these two disciples came to Jesus, Jesus said, well, what do you see? You know, the, the lame are healed, the blind see, the dead rise. And, and those are the criteria. Those are the credentials of God. Who else can do those things but God? So go back and tell John, no, you did not miscalculate. Everything is on schedule. The Bible is just filled with so many other examples of where the surprising twist and turn happens. For example, in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, there's a story about uh, a, a man that was lame and his four friends trying to heal the man had him lay down on a mat and they picked up the four corners of the mat and they went to where Jesus was. Jesus at this time was inside of a house. The house was jam-packed with people watching and listening to what he was doing. It overflowed into the outside of the house. So when these people came carrying their friend on the mat, they couldn't get anywhere near the house to be able to have Jesus heal him. And by faith, they had faith that Jesus was the one that was able to do that. What they did is they climbed up on the roof on a house they did not even own, and they started to take the roof apart. They had a large hole, large enough to lower a man on it, and they lowered him right in front of Jesus. Jesus seeing their faith, because who else would do that unless you truly believed that Jesus had the ability to do a healing of such, um, of such a, a magnitude. So Jesus seeing their faith, he said, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that time, they were irate with Jesus because they viewed that as blasphemy because who can forgive sins but God alone? They did not believe that Jesus was God. So Jesus, being able to read their minds and know what they were thinking, spoke out loud and he said, let me ask you, what's more easy to do or what's more difficult to do? Um, is it more difficult to say your sins are forgiven or is it more difficult to 
have someone walk that had never walked before. And, and Jesus said, I'm going to demonstrate to you that if I can do the more difficult one, I certainly am capable of doing the easier one. So what Jesus was pointing out is it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Anyone can do it, but how do you measure that? How do you validate that indeed they are forgiven? It's just words. But when you say, get up off that mat, and that person had never walked before, and if that person gets up off their mat and starts walking, well, then you know that God is present because who else can do such a miracle but but God? So Jesus said, I'm going to do the more difficult one because the more difficult one can be verified. And if I can verify that, then you also know that what I say is also accurate. The Bible is filled with many other interactions. Matthew records in chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, about three groups of people that do not um, like each other, but because they hate Jesus more, they band together to rid themselves of Jesus, which they ultimately do when they put him on a cross. The Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees are these three groups of people. So they band together to um, um, to um, rebel against Jesus. So so the Pharisees go first. They lay plans to trap Jesus in his words. So they go up to Jesus and they try to butter him up. They say, Jesus, we know you're a man of integrity. Um, you aren't swayed by others' opinion. You teach the way of God. So tell us um, your opinion. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Well, this was a trap for Jesus because either way he would have answered this would have posed him problems and probably death. If he said, no, do not pay your, your tax to Caesar, then Rome would have come in, the Roman guards would have come in and arrested Jesus and probably killed him for causing an insurrection, for a causing a rebellion. If Jesus said, yes, of course, you, you absolutely will pay the tax to Caesar, well, then that would pose a problem with the Jewish people because God was their leader, not, not, um, not Caesar. So they were under occupancy uh, by the Roman government. Uh, they were um, slaves to the Roman government uh, during this time. So if Jesus would have uh, conformed to Rome over uh, the Israel people, then that would have posed an issue to them. So Jesus said, well, give me a coin. Uh, who has a coin? So somebody in the crowd said, well, here, I have one. And Jesus looked at it and he said, well, who, whose picture's on here? Whose image is on here? And they said, Caesar. And he said, well, since Caesar made it, give Caesar what Caesar made. And the people were amazed at that answer. So the Sadducees came in and they asked Jesus the next question. Now the Sadducees were a group of religious leaders that only believed the things that Moses spoke of and wrote about. So they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. So in there, in the, as part of that belief, they did not believe that there was angels and they did not believe that there was a resurrection. So to basically to try to mock Jesus, they asked him a question about the resurrection. They said, well, Moses said that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and, and raise the offspring for him to keep the family line uh, going. So if the wife was left to the brother, and then the same thing happened, the, the second brother did not have any children with, the, with the, um, the widow, and then ultimately that second brother died. And then the third brother died, and the fourth brother died, and the fifth brother died, and the sixth brother died, and the seventh brother died. Ultimately, there's no children. So now, when they're in heaven for the resurrection, of which the Sadducees did not believe in, they said, well, who's, who's, um, 
whose bride, whose husband is she? You know, she married seven brothers. Where is the marriage? Where's the connection? Who is she married to? Which of the seven brothers? So Jesus said, you're an error. Well, they were surprised. Well, how could we be an error? And, and Jesus said, because at the resurrection, we will be like the angels. The angels do not procreate. They do, they do not get married and have children. So when we are in heaven, we will not be married. We will not be procreating and having other children. And then he also said, you're also in error because you don't understand the power of God. And so, so Jesus pointed out, first of all, we'll be like the angels, which they did not believe in. And then he said, also, we will be like the power of God because Jesus said, you have not read. Jesus did not say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. No, God said at the burning bush, I am, meaning he currently is. Even though they died a long time ago, God is still the God of them today. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus quoted back from the book of, 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 uh, uh, of Genesis and Deuteronomy and Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus, the first five books, and, and quoting from that, because if he would have quoted from something else, they would say, well, we don't believe in that. So he went back to the original source that they did believe in, and he proved to them their error. So with the Pharisees and now the Sadducees discarded, the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching and, and his answers to this. So now it was the Herodians' turn to step up and challenge Jesus. So the Herodian, who is really a government leader, he came up and to test Jesus. And he said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in your law? Jesus replied, Love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the reason Jesus said this, the reason this person had this Herodian had come up and, and said, which one is the greatest? Because then you're really diminishing the other ones. And, and they're all um, equally important. But Jesus said, among them, loving God is really the most important. Because the truth of the matter is, if you love God, you're not going to use the Lord's name in vain. You're not going to have any other gods before before the Lord. And the other one is like it, because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to cover it what your neighbor has. You're not going to kill. You're not going to murder your neighbor. You're not going to steal from your neighbor. So if you're following these two, you're really following them all. And once again, the people were surprised. So Jesus turned the tables on them and in essence said, okay, you asked me questions. Now I'm going to ask you a question. So Jesus asked him a simple question. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And they replied quickly. They're like, oh, this is easy. The son of David. And, and Jesus said to them, well, then how come David, while speaking in the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? So, so there was this conversation that was captured in Psalm uh, 110, verse 1, where David is listening to a conversation among the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is speaking to the Lord, meaning it's, it's one deity speaking to the other deity. It's the three in one. And they are speaking, and David is listening to this. And David writes in Psalm 110 that the Lord is speaking to my Lord. And, and, and the point that Jesus was saying is that, that, that 
that David was not talking about Solomon, his son, because when you are the king, as a king's son, he's not your lord. He's an inferior to you. Um, he's not a superior. So as king, there is no one superior to the king except for God. So so Jesus, so David could not have been calling his Lord his son because his son would be inferior in rank. So so Jesus was saying, okay, well, if the Messiah was to come from the line of David, David is a human being, the Messiah is God. So if the Messiah is supposed to come from the line of David and David is a human being, then that means that God was going to come in a physical way, in a human way, being 100% God and 100% man. Another very interesting story um, occurs in John chapter 5. And here is a, um, a man that's 38 years old, has been lame for 38 years, unable to walk. And he's been sitting at this, this healing pool, or at least what they thought was a healing pool, that as it's stirred up once a day or once a week or whatever it was, when it started to boil up, that the thinking was whoever got into that, that pool first would be the one that would get healed. Well, since this person was lame and not able to get into the pool when it stirred up, others would jump in before them, before him. Um, he was not able to. Jesus had walked into this healing pool area, saw the man and said, do you want to get healed? And the man said, yeah, I would love to, but no one will help me into the water when it stirs up. And Jesus healed the man and said, take your mat and go home. Well, when the religious leaders saw the man holding a mat, they viewed that as work and doing work on the Sabbath according to the man-made laws was breaking the law. So they had gone up to the man and said, you're breaking the law, citizens, the rest, if you will. And the man said, well, you know, I was told to do this. And they said, well, who told you to do this? And he said, well, you know, Jesus at the healing, at, at the healing pool. So there's a conversation between the religious leaders and Jesus at this healing pool where Jesus was equating himself to God. He said, when God works, I work. When God raises someone from the dead, I raise them from the dead. So Jesus was saying that, that God the Father and Jesus are one and the same. And the religious leaders clearly understood this. They just didn't agree with it. It says he was even calling God his own father, making himself an equal with God. Jesus presents a building argument why indeed he is God, that, that the things he said are true, that they understood what he said, they just didn't agree with it. But their interpretation was wrong, but their understanding about what he said was correct. So Jesus says, I testify about myself. And the point is that God cannot lie, so... If God says this is true, then it is true. But, but Jesus says, however, you know, a testif testimony about myself is not valid. In the court of law, you need to have a witness. And Jesus said, there's another that testifies in my favor. And he talked about John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was there. And he pointed and said, this is the Messiah, follow him. He says, however, John the Baptist is just a human being. And, you know, he said, so I have, I have a witness that is superior. And he said, the very work that, I, that the Father, that God the Father has given him, he's doing. So he's doing the work of proclaiming um, the good news. He's doing the work of, of miracles. And that can only come from God. And he says, so, so God testifies about me. And he said, you know, you've seen and, and heard him at, at, at the, at the uh, baptism. You've seen and, and heard, uh, heard this yourself. 
And then, and then Jesus continues. He says, but he said, I have, I have other validations. He said, when you read the scriptures, the scriptures that you diligently study, he said, these testify about me. Jesus is fulfilling every prophecy that was told about what the Messiah would do, where, where he would be born, and the miracles and talking in parables and all that. And Jesus fulfilled each and every one or was continuing to fill, fulfill each and every one. So that validated him. And he says, you know, and it's strange. He said, you know, if someone from out of town came and, uh, and had something, you know, different to say, you would readily accept them. But when I come, you don't accept what I say. You know, you're, you're quick to jump on to unbelief. But when someone comes and gives you truth, you, you refuse to believe it. And then he says, all of your hopes are, 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 are built on Moses. And he said, but Moses is actually your accuser. He says, you know, because you put your hopes are set on Moses. He says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me for Moses wrote about me. So Jesus fulfills that argument or builds that argument on why they are wrong. And, and indeed, he is the Messiah. He is God. He is equal. The religious leaders of that time had a problem on their hand because the arguments that Jesus was making were hard to invalidate. Um, when you have miracles that are happening, when you have people that could not see and could not walk and could not hear and had leprosy, and then suddenly this one man, Jesus, is is healing and restoring all of these things. How do you deny the miracles? So when Jesus speaks, how do you deny that? So what they what they decided, and this is picked up in, in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, is they said, yes, Jesus indeed does have the power. He, he clearly is doing these miracles, but this power is not coming from God. It's coming from Beelzebub. It's coming from the devil, that the devil is the one giving uh, Jesus this power. That's what they said. So Jesus has a um, another argument with them, another debate with them, if you will. And he points out really three reasons that this argument is, is in error. And he says that Satan is, if Satan is divided, um, that doesn't make sense. A house uh, divided will fall upon itself. What Jesus is saying is that when Jesus goes and he um, like he did with the legion of, of demons and put you know where they entered the pigs, when 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 Jesus heals people that are demon possessed, well that would only make Satan weaker. That would not make Satan stronger. Um, by healing people from demon possession, only would make Satan uh, weaker. It's it's turning a house against itself. So he said logically, does that make sense? You know why why would Satan do that? And then Jesus pointed out that some of the religious leaders also had the um, the power for particular reasons to to do some healings. So Jesus is saying, well, are your healings, are those also then done by the power of Satan, uh, by Beelzebub? Um, you know, how, how do you justify that? And then he said, when you look at it from this point of view, he said, when you have an intruder that goes into the home, into your home, if you have an armed robbery, that person is stronger than you. And, and what happens is that person will tie you up, will, bound, will bind you while they're robbing your house. 
And Jesus said it's really the same type of thing that happens with a demon possession, is you have somebody from the outside that is coming in and demon possessing you. That person is stronger than you. You are not able to, um, to defend yourself. That person is tying you up. They're binding you. So when you have someone that is stronger, that is feeding on someone weaker, but then you have Jesus that comes in and he takes that person that's stronger and he's showing he's even stronger than demons, that he can say, get out of here, rid yourself, that he's showing that his power is superior to, to the demonic power. And then Jesus continues in verse 24 of Luke chapter 11, and he gives this parable. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So what Jesus is saying in this parable is he's not talking about a house. He's talking about a person that when someone is demon-possessed, but now this person is trying to clean their lives up. They're starting to read the Bible. They're starting to uh, you know, try to be um, a, a better person, uh, be kinder, more loving. Well, that demon doesn't want anything to do with that. So that demon is going to leave that person. And what happens is the demon is out in these arid places, and it can't find any place more suitable than where he was. So this demon returns to this person, and now this person is really not living righteous anymore. Um, it was it was a phase. It was a fad. It did not land. It did not sustain itself. The place is empty. Um, everything is in order. It's, it's empty. The Holy Spirit has not filled that vacuum, that void. So now the now the devil goes and gets seven other demons that are even more corrupt and more vile and more destructive. And now you have seven demons going into this person. So sometimes when people try to give up their addictions and, and habits, and then when they backslide, they're actually, they actually doing more drugs and they do more um, harmful things. And what happens is, is that is the demons. It's, it's really more demons coming in and making things worse. And the, and the point of this is that it's an unfair fight. You have one person and you have seven demons. You had this one demon-possessed person in a legion of them, enough to, you know, to fill a thousand pigs. So that's an unfair fight. That's seven against one or a thousand against one. Mary Magdalene had said that there were seven spirits in her. That's an unfair fight. So as part of this parable, Jesus is saying that really we need to make it uh, an unfair fight to our advantage. And that is where becoming part of a church community to rely on other fellow believers that we build up and now we can attack that one demon that when we're, when we're a group of, 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 a, of a true church, of a true believer, when we're in God's word, when we're in prayer um, and, and, we're, and we have this fellowship, now it's a, an unfair fight in our advantage. Satan tries to pick on the lonely. For example, if you think about the Serengeti and you think about a pack of lions and then um, out in the Serengeti there's zebra and there's gazelle and there's antelope and, and you know, uh, other types of animals. What do, the, what do the lions do? What they do is they, they chase after 
and they find one that breaks away from the group and that's who they go to devour. So that's an unfair fight. What we want to do is we want to stay connected with the, uh, the body of the church and that way we'll be protected from uh, Satan. We want to have the Holy Spirit within us and not have an empty space. We want to have the Holy Spirit living within us.